grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Well, it's decision time. Naomi has made up her mind, hoping that her return to the house of bread and praise might hold a brighter future for her. However, she has pleaded with her daughters-in-law to stay behind. What will they decide? Go back to their gods or follow the true and living God? Listen, I'm going home with nothing and I'm going home to nothing. Why would you want to come with me? I'm destitute. I'm impoverished. Why? It's a very important question because, well, I don't know if one brought it up and the other chimed in or if both together they sort of did a duet. You know, hey, we're going with you. But I know from reading the lives of the disciples that oftentimes, well, someone like Peter would say something silly or stupid and, and all the disciples would chime in. Yeah, we're there. We're with you. We're going too. And it's possible that that's going on here because, well, one of these gals is going to count the cost and she's going to turn back. The other is going to count the cost and she's going to commit to be, well, we'll read it and, and it's amazing and wonderful and a beautiful picture of the beginning of her redemption. Turn back, verse 12, my daughters. Oh, no, after she says there in, in, in verse 11, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Now, if that seems strange to you, let me explain why she even says it. There was a law. It's going to be in effect later in the book itself. But there was a law in Israel that if a man died and he had no offspring, his brother was supposed to, well, marry the widow, raise a son, name him after his deceased brother. The land would stay in the family. The brother's name would continue. It's the law of the kinsman redeemer. It will be a major part of this book. 21 times, 21 times, there'll be reference to the Goel or the kinsman redeemer. But here's what's going on at this point. She's just saying, look at, do I have kids still coming? And, and even if I did, even if I did, if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? She's saying, look, what if I go back and get married and I have a child? You're going to wait for that kid to grow up and marry you? Nah, would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What she's doing here, in essence, is she's saying, look, I believe that this has been a judgment of God. We were under God's judgment. There we tried to squeak out from under it. The judgment followed us. And now things are worse here than they were there. Now, whether she's completely right or not, only God knows. But I do know this. It grieved her to see her daughter-in-law's suffering. And she believed, at least in part, it was her fault. Now, they do insist on going with her and she does all she can to convince them not to. And what's she doing? Just the same thing our Lord will later require 
all who follow him to do. Count the cost. And I do think that today, sometimes, not most of the time and not in most places, but sometimes, we could be guilty in our, in our zeal and desire to see people come to the Lord. We could be guilty of not calling them to repentance in order to come. Now, now what I mean by this is, I know that salvation is a gift of God. It's unearned. It's undeserved. But in order to turn to the Lord, I do have to turn from my sin. At least the sin of thinking I was good enough for God on my own or could earn my way to heaven through my works or by keeping laws or by joining a church or by going through some kind of ceremony or sacrament. I have to repent of those thoughts because they're all in the way of just receiving the free gift of everlasting life. Now, there's a lot more that I had to repent of and no doubt you're dealing with some of those issues after coming to the Lord. But the one issue that stands between us and the Lord is that idea that we're going to be fine somehow on our own. And the truth is, if you want to know how bad your sin really looks to God, all you need to do is consider the cross. Because Jesus died for your sins and for mine. And it's not just that, well, all of them put together were bad enough to nail him to the cross. Just yours, just mine, enough. Because there would have been no other possibility for my salvation or yours, for our forgiveness, for our restoration. So she's just saying, listen, count the cost. Consider what you're doing. Consider the choice you're making. And they lifted up their voices, verse 14, and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. One, an absolute picture of emotion. She's clinging, she's kissing, but then she's leaving. The other, a wonderful picture of devotion as she clings and won't let go and won't move on. So she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. Well, how is Ruth going to respond to all of this? Hey, it maybe is a small thing. It may be insignificant, but I got to point it out. We will never hear of or see again that first gal. She hits the road and we never hear of her again. Ruth, well, she becomes a major player in the, the, the kingdom of God, the work of God, the plan of God. There are only two books in the Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. Esther's a Jewish gal that, that ends up having to live among the pagans in order to bring salvation to her people in order to keep them alive until the coming of Messiah. Ruth, well, she's a godly gal that, that well, I mean, she was a pagan gal, a Moabite that now is moving to, to, to live among the people of God. Well, Ruth says, and I love it, and many of you are familiar with this, even if you didn't know this is where it came from, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, or where you die, excuse me, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Ruth's response, 
it assures Naomi of at least these four things. First, her intention to follow after and stay with her. Whatever the cost, it's the fellowship of sufferings. Naomi's saying, look, I have nothing and I'm going back to nothing. She says, that's fine with me. I'm going with you. Whatever the cost, wherever it leads, she's saying, I'm going to be with you. The second is to live among and become one with her people. And I like this. She just says, your people shall be my people. Your people, my people. This is, this is her saying, I have seen in you enough to know that that's, that's what I want to be. Now, I find this interesting because, well, this family has been in the wrong place for the wrong reason. And yet God is able to turn this around and arrange a divine appointment. It reminds me of when Jesus, we're told in John 4, needed to go through Samaria. The old King James says he must need go through Samaria. I liked it. It was an absolute must. Why? There was one woman alienated from God who had a hunger and desire to get right, to know him and his forgiveness. And Jesus went to meet with her. We'll come back to it. We'll consider it in a moment. But, but that's what's going on here. They left. It was a bad decision. They went to the wrong place. But God says, okay, now that you're here, I'm going to use you. And I've seen God faithfully do that in life after life after life. We make good decisions and bad ones. We have consequences from both. But people are watching our lives. And this gal Ruth is watching Naomi and she sees enough and hears enough and learns enough to know, man, I want to be with you and I want to be one of your people. And then she says, and this is perhaps my favorite part, your God, my God. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. This is her turning to the Lord, trusting in the Lord. It's a crossroads for her. As her mother-in-law says, look, go back to the gods of your people and to your family. And she goes, no, I want to be with you and I want to be one of your people and I want to be with your God and worship your God. And here's why that's so important. Well, she was a worshiper of the true and living God. She had introduced, no doubt, her daughter-in-law to the reality that there was one God, creator and sustainer of all. And though she, well, takes some credit for the decision perhaps to come to Moab, maybe she was in on it or even, you know, a part of leading to it. There, there's something else, though. Jesus did make mention of the fact that if we're going to follow him, we've got to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then follow him. And, and he says at one point, if you love father or mother or sister or brother or well, anyone more than me, you won't be able to come after me. And had she had her heart attached to her family naturally, she would have never been a part of this family supernaturally. She decides she's going to submit to and serve the true and living God. This is her salvation. This is her turning to and trusting in the Lord. This is her forsaking the idols of the Moabites to go and learn of and follow after the true and living God. And then she says, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more if 
anything but death departs you and me. The fourth thing, besides her intention to follow after and stay with, to live among and become one of her people, to submit to and serve the true and living God, she says nothing short of death would change her mind or alter her course. No wonder these promises have been used in many weddings. And though they're pulled out of a context, well, they're beautiful promises and fitting as they are binding. Well, nothing short of death would change her mind. And verse 18 says, when she saw she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now we find them back in Bethlehem. It's sort of a house of bread sandwich. You have bread here and bread here. And the meat of it, sadly, was there in Moab. And the meat was bad news. It was a bitter pill to swallow. Well, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they'd come to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi and Ruth, they find their way back to Bethlehem and there's this stir, there's excitement. And then she's just saying, listen, don't even call me Naomi. Remember, the word means pleasant. What's taken place during their time, their sojourn, their journey to and life in Moab? Well, her husband's died. Her sons have died. And, and pleasant, Naomi is now bitter and, and hurting and barren and hopeless. And well, God's going to turn all that around. But Again, it's, it's a warning to us to stay close, to stay in the word and to feed on the word and, and not to go after the things of the world or try to find our satisfaction in the world. The sorrows and sufferings Naomi's endured, they've taken their toll. And so she expresses the barrenness and bitterness of her heart as she says, don't call me pleasant, just call me bitter. Well, at this point, Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, verse 22, from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The time of their arrival is a clue to what lies ahead. Now, you're not going to have to wait till next week to find out what happens next. And if you do, well, I don't get that at all. But I, if you do, you do. But for me personally, I'd be, well, don't do it right now. Hang with me for a couple minutes. But when you go home tonight, there's only three more chapters. Go back over this one and then see how the Lord turns this around and the wonderful things that come about. Well, again, the time of harvest. It's a time, well, of, of life, a promise of joy and and. You should know this book, it continues to be read at Pentecost every year among Orthodox Jews. Uh, there in Israel and throughout the world, they take the little book of Ruth, they read it, they revel in it, they consider it, they talk about it. Why? Because, well, the harvest is going to lead into all sorts of blessing. This harvest would lead to Ruth's acceptance, her marriage, and her exaltation. 
Because Ruth, just like us, chosen before the foundation of the world, she's going to be the great grandmother of King David. This Moabite, this woman living among accursed people, she comes and becomes one of the people of God and serves and worships the true and living God. And it's that Romans 8, all things working together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. There's another harvest. Acts chapter 2, many of you are familiar with it. It's in fulfillment to many promises made by God concerning the Gentiles and his plan for their, and I should really say for our redemption. For in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, the day these guys still read Ruth and celebrate it, after a notable miracle where two things happen, visibly there are tongues of, well, cloven fire come and rest upon the heads of these 120 gathered in an upper room. And as they do, these guys begin to praise and worship the Lord in languages they'd never learned. Now they were languages, we know that for sure, because the people on the streets, the Parthenians and Medes and Eliamites and people from Mesopotamia and elsewhere, they heard them proclaiming the wonderful works of God in their own languages, in their native tongues. So these guys in the upper room, they're praising God in languages they've never learned. These people down on the streets are hearing that praise of God in their own languages, and they understand it, of course. Then Peter, as the crowd is sort of, well, they've got some mixed reviews. Some say, it's a bunch of drunks, you know, and, and Peter says, these guys aren't drunk as you suppose. No, that's not what's going on here. But this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. He gives a biblical basis for the spiritual phenomenon. And then he says, saying in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And, and he begins to quote from Joel. He begins to just share what was taking place. And, and in the midst of all of it, he preaches the gospel. He preaches Jesus crucified buried and risen again the third day. He preaches the good news and in the midst of his preaching, 3,000 people are convicted and converted. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? And they give their life to the Lord. So this little church of 120 becomes a church of 3,120. Now, here's the whole point of this. It's a harvest. It's being celebrated Pentecost is the celebration of harvest. They probably just got done reading Ruth and, and now they're worshiping the Lord and praising him. Why? They're, they're there, close to, not in the house of bread and praise. No, they're in Jerusalem at that point. But Bethlehem, it's their house of bread and praise. And these guys are in the word and they're praising the Lord. And I find that always happens. If I'm in his word, I find reason to praise him. If I find anything but praise coming forth, it's usually because, well, haven't been in the Word. I just had to replace my Bible. I may rebind it, but it'll be a third time. And it is just almost worn out. And somebody had said to me once, well, better to have a worn out Bible than a worn out guy. And it usually is one way or the other. A guy with a worn out Bible probably doing okay. A guy with a perfect mind. Nah, you can tell this thing's never been cracked. Going to be worn out himself. Well, there's a third harvest and I want to draw your attention to it. And then we're going to worship together. It's in Matthew 9. I want you to turn there for a moment and we'll conclude for tonight. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 36, just three verses. 
first harvest, the harvest that brings Ruth to, well, what will be a very exciting and encouraging story as we press on next week. Second harvest there in Acts chapter 2. This harvest, well, Jesus had made mention of it earlier, but seeing the multitudes we read in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's what he sees, says, and, and does. He sees the multitudes. We see them every day. Mobs of people. Many of them miserable. Some of them seem fine. But Jesus is moved with compassion because he sees the truth. They're weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. His instruction to his disciples, and I believe he'd be telling us to pray this tonight. Pray the Lord of the harvest. Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. Send out workers, laborers into your harvest. No, I love this because the chapter ends, the very next chapter begins, and you know there are no actual chapter divisions in the original scriptures. It was just long ongoing and started and then it ended and that's what you had. Well, the very next thing is tells us he empowered them and instructed them and he sent them out in answer to their prayers. I've noticed the Lord's done this to us many times. He set our heart in a direction and we prayed for it and, and, and just, Lord, please do something there. Please show us if there's anything we can do. And the very next thing he does is he shows us there's not only something we can do, we can be majorly involved. And the harvest, well, there was that harvest in Acts 2 and there have been many since. But, but I want you to see, I told you this would be the last. I, and I hate to not be a man of my word, but I am going to be a man of the word. So turn to John 4, 31, and we really will, I promise, conclude with this one this time. In John 4, 31, this is after his ministry to the woman at the well. I told you we were going to come back to this. So either way, see, either way I was in trouble. But in John 4, 31, after Jesus has met with that woman at the well and he's talked to her about living water and, and she says, oh, I want that water. And, you know, she, she, he gets her all the way to, I know Christ is coming. And, and he's like, hey, he who speaks to you, I'm him. I am. And in any case, the disciples show up. They went to get food. They bring the food, verse 31, and they urge him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now, I love these guys because they're consistent. They start to say, somebody else bring them something. I mean, it's, you know, they never really latch on when he's talking to them spiritually. I mean, eventually they get it, but they're slow. And that gives hope to us. And so... Has anyone else brought something to eat? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life 
that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. It was true then, it's true today. Jesus is still saying to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What a wonderful picture this is. A picture of you and I hearing, believing, and receiving the gospel and entering into the inheritance we have in Jesus. Join us next time as we look at how life in the house of bread and praise begins to change the lives of Ruth and Naomi as Pastor Sam dives into Ruth chapter 2. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you soon. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.